Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Welcome to Built Not Born, episode 56. Have an interview today with Trent McIntyre. This interview I totally forgot about. Trent and I spoke over the holidays and I filed it under the wrong place on my computer and I just realized I never posted this one. Trent was born with cerebral palsy but he had no idea that he had it till later in life when he was struggling with pain. His parents were drug addicted. They had drugs all over the house and never told Trent he was born with they called class one cerebral palsy. Trent tells us how he grew up with so many physical restrictions, one being every time he tried to read, he would fall asleep because it was so hard for his brain to process the information. I'll let Trent tell the story. He does an amazing job of creating his life. And not only that, but finding ways to help others that struggle with visual impairment. He is his own guinea pig. And he started a company called Fire Up Your Brain. That's the website. I'll post all these in the show notes. But please take a listen. It's a fascinating story with a person that has overcome tremendous odds to not only get his life in order, but to help others along the way. I hope you enjoy. So thank you for listening. If you could do me a favor... If you could please rate the podcast, if you could punch a five-star rating on either Spotify or Audible or Apple Podcasts, whatever you listen to, it would go a long way to help spread the podcast and get the word out. I would really appreciate it. We have an awesome third season about to launch after Labor Day. We have New York Times bestselling authors. We have NFL general managers. We have nationally renowned surgeons. We have NCAA Coaches of the Year in Division I Basketball joining us. I'll drop that name later. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please hit the follow button and give us a review. Enjoy my conversation with Trent McIntyre, creator of Fire Up Your Brain and One Resilient Human Being. And remember, life is built, not born. Trent McIntyre, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. We are excited to have you. Trent, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? So I help people restore movement quality and have a better quality of life. I do that through 25 years of experience of of helping people accomplish that. It comes from my own story, which I'm sure we'll get into, but basically I end up with people that fall into what I call the movement gap. When they're done with therapy, they finish their PT or their OT, whatever they're doing, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and they're not quite at a place where they have their quality of life back and they can't do the things that they want to do. And that's what I call the movement gap. And a lot of people fall into that gap. And having the experience in the background that I have, I'm positioned along with a lot of other Pilates instructors to be in a place to help them. And so for 25 years, that's what I've done. I've I've been problem solving for people that have been everywhere and seen everybody, but still haven't accomplished their quality of life they're looking for. I want to get into all that remarkably, which is just it just blows my mind. You were born with cerebral palsy. I want to get into that. I want to get into your upbringing, being born to two parents that abused drugs. Your dad died at such a young age at seven and all the great stuff you have going on with fire up your brain. But before we get into all of that, I want to start back all the way from the beginning, where did you grow up? 
I grew up in a small town in southern Michigan called Cement City. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a mafia. Sounds like a mafia. You can't, <laughs> you can't make it up. I mean, and what's incredible is that the town basically existed to get cement to other parts of the country to build highways. And so they built a cement factory on a lake and then a little town popped up to support the workers at the factory. And I grew up on a, a farm. Actually, the farm is bigger than the city. The, the, we only have 310 people. The last census, it's a very tiny little town. Uh, I was listening to a, a podcast with Walter Isaacson, the biographer, Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, and Albert Einstein. And he says all his biographies right around 10 years old is a very formative time where things happen to people that shape the course of their life. And one of those things are like who they hang with, what their dinners look like. And can you think back? What was it like around the dinner table when you were 10 years old? Could you describe the scene? Yeah, we actually didn't eat at a dinner table. So we ate in the living room. We, even though we were very poor, food was not scarce. So dinners were always great. Dinners were the best part of the day because all of our food was grown fresh on the farm. And anything that we ate, we either raised or our friends down the road with a different farm raised. It was organic before organic was a thing. And so it was really just my family, my brother and I, and my stepdad and mom, mostly at that age. Looking back around that time, what's the most powerful memory of your childhood? Mm, wow. I, I think that it's when I was seven. It was, that's, when my, that's when my real dad died. And I actually didn't know him. I didn't grow up knowing him. My, my first memory of him was actually at his funeral. So it really speaks to the kind of childhood that I had, that my first memory of my dad was at his funeral. And I've seen a picture or two of him. I don't really know much about the background. Similar to that sort of six to 10 age range is that when typically when a parent dies, there can be one of two trajectories that are really common and it, things can fall apart and never recover, or it can spark uh, a sense of survival that allows for some thriving to happen. And fortunately, that's what it did for me. It, it really, it, it allowed me to exist in an environment that was so destructive and detrimental to any kid growing up, but still chart my own course and see that, that I was capable of making things happen on my own. You just mentioned you were in an environment that was detrimental. Can you describe that? What was so detrimental about it? Yeah, I think when there's alcoholism in the family, and, and I knew I actually had awareness when my dad died that he died of alcoholism because it was he was very young and died of a heart attack from being an alcoholic. And both my stepdad and mom drank every day a lot. And there was all kinds of drugs in the house. And I wasn't able to have friends over to my house because there was too much exposure risk for the things and the behaviors that they were doing and the drugs that they were into to have friends over. To be in a situation where I have to protect a secret that isn't mine, but I feel I felt obligated to protect my parents by not saying something. And it's a burden I don't think that any kid should have to, to shoulder. And so that, that kind of environment, I wouldn't wish that on any kid. Wow, that's rough. Not only that, but in your biography and speaking to you beforehand, so you were born with cerebral palsy. How? Yeah. So what? Well, I mean, looking at you know, you look like a really healthy, vibrant person. So what was your diagnosis? And walk us through like how you go from being born with cerebral palsy to doing what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. The 
so the beautiful thing is I wasn't aware that I had cerebral palsy until I was 19. And so I thought the way I felt was normal. I actually was very athletic. I played basketball and I eventually got into dance. And that's actually how I was my ticket out of Cement City was I got a scholarship to go to college and get a four-year degree and get a dance degree that came with doing kinesiology and anatomy and movement therapies and all kinds of modalities that would turn out to support my career, my 25-year trajectory that I'm on so far. But it was while I was at college and I had a really intense couple of weeks. We had like 15 performances and rehearsals in two weeks. And I woke up and I could barely move. I could barely walk to the shower because I had so much pain from the knees down, from the inflammation, from this chronic injury that I didn't know didn't know what had been going on or what had happened. And but it was it felt like an emergency. It felt like if I don't resolve this, I'm not going to be able to continue. And that meant losing my scholarship. That meant losing my ticket out of the space that I really was not going back to. And I was home for a Christmas break and I was just complaining to my mom. And I was like, I don't get, I don't get what's going on. I don't understand why I have so much pain and inflammation from the knees down. I can barely walk in the morning. And I was just going through the whole thing and I don't get it. And she looked at me and she said, Trent, that's because you were born with cerebral palsy. And then I was like, I was 19 and I was like, wait, I don't understand. Like, I don't know what that is. First of all, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You seem to have known this your whole life. And I haven't known this my whole life. <laughs> and so there was like a whoa moment. And she said, don't you remember when you were three and who remembers three, but, and she, she tried to spark my memory by saying the doctors decided to put casts on your legs because you weren't able to walk with your heels on the ground. But I learned how to walk in the balls of my feet because my Achilles tendon was so short that I couldn't physically touch my heels to the ground. And so the doctors put casts on my legs to force the tissues to stretch enough that I could walk on my feet flat with my heels touching. And then I had a memory of having this cast on. And, and of course, having an older brother, putting garbage bags on my legs and throwing me in snowbanks in the winter and making it fun for him too, of course, as five-year-older brothers do. And so I was like, yeah, I do have that memory. And really um, looking back, it was a gift to, to not be told because I didn't have any limitations put on myself by a label or by any kind of outside influence of what I should or shouldn't be doing. And for those people who don't know what cerebral palsy is, it's actually a complicated sounding name for something that's pretty simple. It's having a head injury at birth. So I, I had a head injury at birth and that head injury then causes restriction and various kinds of complications in your body's ability to move. And depending on how bad of an injury, that means how bad the cerebral palsy is. So there's a classification to make it simple. I have a, like a class one where, and a lot of people do actually, where looking at me, you wouldn't know by looking at me necessarily. And, but I had tremendous restrictions. I, my, my, my mobility was so low that it's really what made dance so attractive to me because there's so much stretching and there's so much mobility work that I felt better when I was dancing. Now, I didn't know when I got into it, that's why I was feeling better because I had so much restriction. But I went back to college with that information determined to recover and being in college and not being able to afford pizza, let alone any kind of therapies, I decided to problem solve with what I did know. And I would come up with exercises and journal solutions that work, things that didn't work, things that made it worse, how much better it would make it, how long it would last. And I rehabbed my own injury and I was able to continue with my degree and then dance professionally afterwards. And it was that problem-solving approach to my own quality of life that became the foundation for how I help other people restore their quality of life.
just to recap, you've started having some inflammation under your knees. You bring that problem to your mom's attention. When she's like, oh, you had cerebral palsy. You have rough memories of that when you were little with being in casts. Did it all come back to you? Are there memories that you had or were they unearthed when she mentioned about the casting? How, how- you know, they were unearthed. I actually, it wasn't, I, I had no, no active recall. I was like, I was like, oh yeah, I remember having casts when I was a kid. And then maybe, you know, that would have sparked more questions. Like, why did I have casts? Mm-hmm. I it didn't break my legs. I don't know why I had these casts on, but no, it was like, it unearthed it. Wow. And then, yeah. then from there, so you go back to college, what adjustments did you make after you found out that you had that diagnosis back in the day and you're still dealing with some of the side effects? How, what, what adjustments did you make? Cause then you said you completed your dance degree. What did you do to? Yeah. So to set the stage at, at the time, you know, I was dancing six to eight hours a day. So extremely intensive. I was doing Pilates multiple times a day. I was lifting weights multiple times a day, doing cardio exercise outside of it multiple times a day. I was in very good shape. And so it wasn't about needing more exercise. It was about moving smarter. It was about learning how the body recovers and how you create balance in the body. And so the adjustment was moving away from just overuse for the sake of being more athletic and moving toward moving smarter and understand my own movement patterns, what's possible. And then leaning into the things that were working. And and what's amazing to me is that that process of finding patterns that were healthy that I could reinforce to create better movement quality and better movement patterns turns out to be years later, I'm reading books about neuroplasticity, which is just the brain is plastic. We know now that the brain is plastic and you can change and you can get new patterns. You can have new connections. And I thought, well, I better read these books. It seems like they're pertinent to the work that I'm doing. And as I'm reading them, I'm realizing for the first time that there's a language and a vocabulary around what I've been doing my whole career. And these books on the brain and performance were coming out, just validating what I'd been doing, just problem solving, figuring out on my own. So getting that connection between what worked for me and what was working for my clients, and then getting some validation in literature was like a really a, a catalyst for what could become possible for people. So take us from you graduate college with a dance degree. Wh- where did you go to school? Uh, Western Michigan University. Awesome. So you go to, you graduate Western Michigan with a dance degree. How do you transition into basically helping other people problem solve for their movement difficulties? Yeah. So while I was at college, I, I well, was able to go through Pilates training as a part of my degree. And so when I graduated and got a, a job dancing with a company, which you know, you're not making a lot of money as an artist and but there was a Pilates studio that had opened up nearby. And so I started working there and they Pilates was really new to the area, very popular. And I had a a full schedule and a wait list really quickly. And so then I had willing, (laughs) what I would call guinea pigs to try what I was figuring out on other people. And while the rest of my colleagues were following a suggested exercise list and a format that they learned in training, I was looking at the situation with more divergent thinking and trying to come up with other solutions that maybe instead of finding like the right answer, coming up with many different answers to see what could stick and what could last. And I think that problem solving quality that I used on myself really started to show up big time. And I really was leaning into that as the as really the foundation for how I would approach people. So basically you were your first guinea pig. You tried stuff on yourself. And then when you found that it worked for you in your situation, you floated it out to other people and started helping them. 
Yeah, and that's still how I work today. And it's actually when I'm working with other Pilates teachers and helping them get better at what they do, that's what I want them to do as well. So if you can experience it yourself, you have some information to go on. You have a context to know what it feels like for the person who's trying to go through the exercise or whatever you're giving them. Absolutely. There's a story I, I read about you doing some research that you never read a book, a full book in your life till you went to a vision therapy booth at a conference. Can you tell that story? Yeah. And college was hard when, it, when I had to read because um, when I would read one or two sentences, I'd fall asleep my whole life. I just get one or two sentences in and my brain would just shut off and I would go to sleep. And going back to where I remember it starting, it was when I was in third grade, my teacher was like, you know, Trent really struggles with reading. So since he struggles so much with reading, what we're going to do is give him more reading. And okay. Like in some respects that can make sense. But if the issue isn't that I wasn't, the issue wasn't that I couldn't read. The issue was actually in my eyes and my eyes couldn't see the same thing at the same time. Now they didn't know that back then. So it was like, oh, he's, he's behind in reading. So give him more reading and think about it from this perspective. I was in third grade. And when I was in third grade, there was no homework. You did everything in school. And, but because I had such a hard time reading, I always had homework. So on top of the homework that I already had, my teacher then gives this book, this other, this box of books that I have to read and answer questions for comprehension at the end of on top of the homework that I wasn't able to get done in school. So it's like adding salt to a wound instead of providing a solution or looking for a possible solution for what's really going on. So that, that stayed with me. And when I got to college, I was like, okay, I've got to, I've got to read my textbooks. I've got to get through my reading. And so I would get up early in the morning, standing up, holding my textbook and reading because I would, that would keep me awake. So I could force myself to get through it. Again, not knowing why at that point yet, not knowing what the issue was. And fast forward, and I was 33, and I was just cleaning out one of my rooms, and I found the book that I that was the first book that I read front to back and enjoyed it. And I was going to a conference, and I was telling a client, like, I just started uh, reading this, this book series, and I got to get the next book because I'm going to be on this trip, and I, it'd be a good time to listen or to read it. And, but what she didn't know is that I, what I meant was actually an audiobook. I was listening to books. That's how I would absorb the information because reading was so hard because I'd fall asleep. And at that time, I had a lot of shame around it. So I would just listen to audiobooks and call that reading. And she's like, oh, that's great. And so she came in the next day with the book for in the next book in the series as like a thoughtful gift. Hey, while you're in the plane, you can read this. And I'm like, oh, great. So now I have to get the audio. I've got to listen to it so I can report back and fulfill the expectation that I had set up. And so I took the book with me. And of course, I didn't read it in the plane because reading on the plane would make me sick in the first place. And I wouldn't be able to read it in the second place. Went to this conference and I had a booth and I was there teaching Pilates and helping other professionals get better at teaching Pilates. And I went to another booth at the conference and there was a vision therapist and they just did a really couple of simple eye exercises with me. And I was like, well, that was cool. And I've never looked, I've done eye exercises, but not quite like we did them. And I uh, I went back to my booth and a friend had stopped by and I'd missed them. And they, they had left me a note to say hi. And I picked the note up and it was a page long and I read it so fast. And I, I got to the end. And I was like, wow, I, I've never read like that in my life. And the person that I'd hired to work with me, they were like, yeah, you read that really fast. I'm like, I did read that really fast. And it just blew me away because for the first time, my eyes worked together. Mm -hmm. And that was the start of really, for me, having a whole brain approach to quality of life and movement recovery, mm -hmm. because we're so programmed. And this is especially true. And, and for Pilates teachers, they're so they're some of the best at 
helping people get better joint mobility and strength and alignment and postural balance, all these things. And that really lives in its own category. But when you look at a whole brain approach, you've got to bring the eyes and the inner ear into the picture. So what had happened for me is that I brought the eyes into the picture in a really big way. And that really sparked my passion and interest in having this whole brain approach because the eyes are prioritized by the brain as the number one spot. And so that, that becomes a huge influential huge influence over how your body moves, your ability to do things outside of just reading. So for me, it started reading, but it became like, oh, movement gets better also. And so on the plane ride home from the conference, I read the book and four hours front to back. And when I got home, I told my wife, I'm like, I got to get the rest of the series. And she's like, you mean audiobook? I'm like, no, I need to get the book. She's like, who are you? And what have you done with my husband? I'm like, I know, but now I'm a reader. What series was it? It was uh, Sea of Monsters by Rick Reardon. And there's a whole, it's a Percy Jackson series. It's actually a book targeted to uh, like a young audience, but it's a fun story. Being married to a vision therapist, what exercise or what tool did they give you at the booth to, to dial in the reading? What trick did they show yeah. you or what tool? Well, did we do? just did, we did eye range of motion. We did eye tracking and yep. side to side, up and down, and some simple convergence exercises, getting both eyes to see the same thing at the same time. Wow. And what I've learned since then, of course, is that what's really common when your eyes don't work together, they don't see the same thing at the same time. One of two things will happen. Usually you either have double vision because each eye is sending an image to your brain and the two of the thing. And one of the, one item, but then your brain is suppressing the other image. And that's what made, would make me go to sleep because my brain is working overtime to not have double vision to suppress one of the images. And that would just make me just conk out. And then when you fall asleep, how long would you sleep for? So you start reading a couple of sentences. you you basically shut just off a couple of minutes. It would just wow. shut me down. Then I would wake up and be like, Ugh. how did you get out of college? How did you get through college like that? Standing that's on crazy. my feet early in the morning reading, I tell you. And I loved having morning classes because that meant I was up at six or seven reading yep. for my eight o'clock class. Yep. And I was ready for class. Whereas my friends who'd been out all night and hated morning classes, who weren't prepared I was always the most prepared for my morning classes because I had just done the reading that it, like an hour before. <laughs> How much was being able to actually read? How much did that change your life? Uh, complete turnaround because I didn't believe that I would have the ability to read. I found the workaround. I'm a problem solver. So I found the workaround. I'll do audiobooks, but reading, man, oh man, that's just, it's everywhere. It's, it's so essential. And when you don't, when you don't enjoy it, then I think that there was a wall or a barrier between me and getting even more knowledge mm -hmm. because reading is a lot faster than audio in the sense that you've got to be someplace where you can listen, which means there's not other people around. Maybe it's in yeah. your car and that works well for me, but reading you can do with anybody at any time yeah. and it doesn't get in the way of whatever's going on socially in the room or sure. if you're you know, sitting with your spouse or something, but it really removed the barrier to acquiring, easily acquiring resources and knowledge. Wow. That's amazing. That, that's amazing. Congrats on that. How, how about, let's fast forward a bit here. Now you have a program called Fire Up Your Brain that, that focuses yeah. on getting the tools that you learned out to everyone who needs them. Your mission in life now has been helping other people strengthen their brain performance. Yeah. Um, tell us how you got into that and tell us about Fire Up. The Fire Up Your Brain is a game. And actually, I'll show you the ball here. And for those people that are not watching and listening, I invented a ball that puts the visual training and the vestibular training into a game. Because so often, as I'm sure your wife can attest, you can have a patient 
who sees a qualified, skilled, passionate professional and then doesn't do their homework, that then doesn't finish, go get across the finish line. Because oftentimes when you're with your therapist, you're not getting to hundred percent. You know, the model isn't getting you to hundred percent recovery. And oftentimes you're like 60 to 80% and then you finish the rest at home. Or if you're not doing your homework, then you're on a, a treadmill with a therapist. You're not making progress. And so what I wanted to do was really bring my inner eight-year-old, which is always there, <laughs> into a fun game. Because when something is fun, the brain pays attention and it stays curious about it. And so by putting it into a fun game of catch, where if you and I were playing, I'd be throwing the ball to you, throw it back to me. But what you do is as you catch it, I would ask you to call out loud what you on the ball. So if you caught it, you'd say, okay, four, throw it back to me. I'd catch it and I'd say, N. And we go back and forth. And what happens is you're going through this two things. The first thing is that you're asking your eyes to track and your whole body to move. So you have your eyes as the, the number one sense the brain is listening to, really engaged in strengthening its range of motion and coordination as the object gets closer to you. And then you have to catch it with your hands. But then the second thing is that you are going through a brain processing system over and over again. <clears throat> and so you're sensing what's on the ball. You're deciding you're going to say it, and then you say it out loud. And so you go sense, decide, act. And it's a cycle that happens already in our brain with how we process, but we're asking you to do this now and it's gamified. So it doesn't feel like a brain exercise. It feels like a game and you're trying to accomplish successfully catching the ball and you can make the game harder or easier and get creative with depending on what your needs are and what you're looking for. What type of results have you seen? Amazing results. For kids, I'll tell you a story. One of my favorites, this was a young lady. She was 14 when I met her and I was, her mom knew me before this, but it was like, I really want you to work with my daughter and she's on the autism spectrum and she struggles with sensory integration. And, and I think it'd be really great for her. And I said, but here's the thing. I said, I want to work with her, but let's make it not a diagnosis that she has or a problem she has. Let's make it about something that she loves. And so with kids, this is my hack with them anyway, because I don't want, they're already seeing every therapist and every doctor and every fill in the blank for their problem, for the thing that makes them feel less than. So I was like, let's see what she's into. And let's, let's see if we can make something that she loves better. And so she came to my booth and she's, I really, I love to dance. And I'm like, that's perfect. Cause I happen to have some experience here and I can use my other experience in this situation. And I said, what's something that your teachers always harping on you and uh, want you to get better at? And she's like, my, my jumps aren't high enough. And I'm always looking down at the floor when I'm jumping. I'm like, okay, let's do some before and after. So let's just have you do you know, your jumps across the floor the way you do them without my instruction. Because this isn't about me teaching her how to do any kind of ballet jumps or anything like that. You do those, we'll play a game, and then we'll jump again and we'll see if they get better. She's like, okay. So she does her jumps across the floor and I see what they look like. And I ask her to just see what they feel like, what she notices about them. So she has some awareness around the situation. And then we played a game of brain speed ball for five minutes or so, just asking her to call out what she sees as she catches it, challenging her to move in different directions and different levels, high and low and slow and quick and one hand and two hands just to keep it fun. And then I said, okay, try your jumps again. And she does her jumps and they're completely higher. She's looking up and she finishes and she looks at me and she smiles and she said, what did you do? That feels so much better. I don't know what happened. I don't know what you did to me, but that feels so much better. 
And that's great. And in that moment, that was a beautiful moment. But I'll tell you, it was the email that I got after the conference was over that revealed the real power that I want to share with you. Because the mom said, thank you so much for working with my daughter. It was really great. And she really enjoyed it. But what you don't know is that the day before you saw her, the conference was in Las Vegas, by the way, the day before you saw her, she wanted to go out and see the strip. And so we went out to see all the lights and all the um, buildings and all the spectacle. And she was crossing the street and just became so overwhelmed that she basically had to be like carried out of the street because all the sensory overload just shut her down. And so then you worked with her and she said, and, and she comes to these conferences with her mom a lot. And she said, there's always a party. There's always like a three hour party with a DJ and music and everything's loud and people are in costumes. So it's a sensory overwhelm. And typically she lasts about a half hour, which is fine. We go back to the room and she can recover and we can go on with the night. And she said that night after you worked with her, after collapsing in the street and having to be carried off, you worked with her. We went to the party and she stayed all three hours. And we got back to the room and she wasn't in a meltdown. She was able to just go to for bed and be fine. And she said, that's really when I saw the power of bringing these, the visual and the vestibular senses into this game. And that, it was incredible because for me, like I said, I don't want to make it about a condition. I want to make it about something that she's interested in. And I think that's a hack for anybody at any age, but what a beautiful thing to have happened to have her, have it show up in her in, in such a powerful way. Oh, thanks for sharing that story. Well, yeah. really cool. How about, so fire up your brain. Who, who do you think the ideal person is that could benefit from that? Yeah. So anybody can benefit, anybody can really benefit from Fire Up Your Brain. And Fire Up Your Brain is the, the name of the program where I, I really put together specific games for populations. And the, we have three main programs. We have a program for kids. And for kids, it's great to help them um, accomplish their homework, to get focus, to regulate to have a tool that they can use on their own. They don't have to have somebody to play the game with. They can throw it against the wall and they have a resource to help them feel more in their body and more able to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. For uh, seniors, the fight for brain for seniors, that's, those games are more focused on a balance and cognitive recall and the, the components around aging that become essential, fall prevention, things like that. And then we have a program for athletes. And for athletes, we really turn up the challenge of the game to tap into the dynamics that they need to have when they're playing their sport. And so we're bringing the ball into uh, situations where it mimics their sport, but they're having to do really high level tracking with their eyes. So that if you imagine if you are a baseball player and you're up to plate and you're going to hit this ball, but your eyes are weak into it, then into the direction that you have to watch the ball and you strike out. You can go lift weights all day. You can go be the fittest, the most athletic person all day. But if your eyes are weak looking to the left, then you're not going to, you're going to strike out every time because you can't see the ball. You can't track the ball. So we look at the different angles and dynamics that athletes deal with and mimic those. So they can improve those gaps. And oftentimes we'll get people that are like, well, I'm not a kid. I'm not a senior. I'm not an athlete. And I default people if they are athletic to go with the athletes program. If they are like non-athletic and just in general want to try something, go with the kids program. Switching gears a little bit here, uh, yeah. just so the listeners can get to know you more as a person. How about when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body? What do yeah. you do? 
So I, I have two strategies because I'm still an athlete. Mountain biking is like meditation for me. That's where if I'm on the trails a couple of times a week, then that becomes really supportive for my mental health and physical health, but more mental health, being outside, being with some friends that I ride with and having the challenge of the terrain that's always changing. So you're always having to figure out how to manage that and stay upright. <laughs> um, but also I use the ball myself. I certainly use it for myself before I made it for anybody else. And I like to make sure that I'm not ignoring the power of making and continuing to keep my eyes and inner ear strong because mm -hmm. they're tied to everything. They're tied to everything you want to do in your life from sitting at a desk and processing something to being active and, and mobile. The, your senses are, are where it's at. You mentioned challenges. Looking back, what's the biggest challenge you ever faced? In my childhood, I, I think one of the biggest challenges was getting to college. I, I grew up on a farm. And as you can imagine, being in a small town and going to college for dance was something that they could not understand. Yeah. <laughs> it was not something on their radar. It was like, that does not compute. But it, that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was actually getting to college because being the first in my family ever to go to a four-year college. I think my brother eventually graduated from a two-year degree, but to go to a four-year college, to move away from home and to do it on my own. And I wrote to financial, I didn't have the money. And, be and because of how the farm was arranged, it looked like we had all of these assets, but because they weren't in my name and they weren't in my mom's name, they were in the farm. It looked like we had these assets that we had enough money to pay for college. And we didn't, and they weren't going to, and they weren't going to try to make it work. So I took out loans. I took out loans for everything at the beginning of college to get there. And I was just going to make it happen. And that was one of the hardest moments in my life because that was a risk. It was like gamble everything on this yeah, yeah. and make it work. Wow. You mentioned you start reading just changed your life of all the books you read. What book influenced your life or changed your mind the most since you started reading again? Gosh, there's so much. But I'll tell you, one of my favorites is a book by Seth Godin. And Seth wrote a book called Poke the Box. Great. And that the idea of, there's a section in the book that I'll never forget because this was so me. Is it, okay, are you that person who has a notebook full of ideas? You get an idea and you write it down in your notebook and you just have all these pages of those great ideas. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. That's me. And he's like, stop it. Stop coming up with more ideas. Pick one and ship it. Yeah. Poke the box. See what happens if yeah. you do that. What will happen if you poke the box? And that was like, I, I remember putting the book down and going, wow, yeah, I don't need to sit here coming up with more ideas. I need to take something. I need to do something with it. And that was profound. Yeah. Godin has a way of just getting under your skin and yeah. making you act. The whole reason why I'm podcasting, I took his podcasting class. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and I, and I spent 40 days with him and online. And he, have you read The Practice? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's my favorite Godin book. I read that. I, re I read a section of that every day, literally every day. And uh, that's a great book because you don't have to read it from front to back. You can pick it up yeah. anywhere and just yeah. take out a section. Yeah. It's like 200 little posts and you could read it backwards, forwards. And uh, yeah. it calls you out each morning. Like he literally, like you said, he calls you out being everywhere, be one place and move something forward right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's a genius. No, thanks for sharing that. How about most high achievers like yourself have a routine, either like the first 60 minutes or like a nighttime or daytime routine to get their day going or wrap their day up. What's your routine? What's the first 60 yeah. minutes of your day, morning or nighttime look like? 
Yeah, water and movement yeah. always every morning. Also. Water and movement, and it's it'll be at least twenty to thirty two ounces of water, depending on where I'm at in the morning. And I do intermittent fasting, so I don't eat in the morning. So I drink water, and I'm on the floor usually in my living room, just doing simple mobility, breathing, getting my body ready to support me in my day. That's every day. It's unusual that doesn't happen in the evening. It's it's really the same thing in reverse in that because I stop water a little bit earlier because I don't want to be getting up four times in the middle of the night. But movement is how I get ready for bed as well. Mm. So my quality of sleep can be good, so it can support me for. And these days, having a high schooler and a college age who's living at home because of the pandemic, sleep is not the most abundant thing in my household right now. Mm. So whatever sleep I do get, I like to be as good quality as possible. You mentioned this fasting. How many hours do you try to go intermittent each day? Yeah, 14 to 16. I'm pretty good at 14. 16 gets challenging for me. But Six, that last hour, I'm trying to do 16 myself. And that 15 to 16 hour, that's for me, that's where the test comes in. Because that's yeah. that's when everything start, starts looking good. But uh, what do you feel after you've done the fasting for a while? Like, how's it make- I have more energy. And I Crazy. amazingly, I, I think better. And I grew up, wake up eat, mm-hmm. <laughs> go on with your day. That was even if you're not hungry. Yeah. You just, oh, yeah. Up, yeah, not hungry at all. Let's jam something in your stomach. Cause totally. yeah. And then you realize it's like not the most important meal of the day and you're better off not eating breakfast and taking that 12, 14, 16 hour fast. Yep. And you actually feel better and have more energy at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. And my, the need for naps went way down unless I really miss a big chunk of sleep. I usually don't need a nap. Whereas before I would nap pretty regularly when I I have two modes, I'm on or I'm off. And if I'm on, (laughs) I'm going, I wear myself out and need a nap, but I I don't need those as much anymore. Even with some of the higher level athletics I'm doing, I still, I don't come home and crash. When you look back to everything you accomplished from being the first in your family to go to college, dealing with the early death of your dad, realizing in college that you actually suffer from cerebral palsy as a child, figuring out how to read as an adult. When you look back at all your accomplishments, which one are you most proud of? Hmm. I think that's pretty easy. That's my kids. Having two daughters that are thoughtful, compassionate. One is an extreme problem solver and the other is the most resilient person that I know, just unbelievable resilience. I couldn't, those are absolutely my best achievements. Oh, that's great. How about what's the most exciting project you're working on now? Oh yeah. I'm super pumped about my new project. For many years, I've been helping Pilates teachers be better problem solvers and bring the brain, the whole brain approach into their practice because they are the number one group poised to help people that fall into this movement gap where they've been everywhere. They've done everything. And so I'm, I've just put together a project that's launching very soon that will help Pilates teachers have tools that are tangible. The brain speed ball is one of them, but I have a series of charts that I've developed and invented and taken vision therapy and vestibular therapy into uh, a much more movement related realm, which is where they're at, where these teachers are at so that their clients can have this whole brain approach. And so being able to support Pilates futures and bringing this approach is a super exciting to me. And I think it's the future of, of the profession. I think it's the future of where people are going to get the most support for restoring quality of life. Very good. How about you mentioned the COVID-19 shutdown. Looking back over the last two years of chaos from the shutdown, 
What's the biggest lesson you took away? What did it teach you? Family is everything because that is what we're left with when we're isolated and we're, we're going to be safe. We're not going to expose in-laws and we're not going to be part of the problem as much as we can. And we're home. And then I have my business is closed for six months and I've got to deal with that. So we're home a lot. And in a, in a time where my daughter is a senior in high school, she wouldn't be, she'd be busy with her senior year of high school and she'd be out with her friends and after school activities and all those things. And having the time with her right now, when she's about to go to college in the fall, uh, was, is pretty amazing. And then having my uh, college daughter who goes to school nearby our house, living at home because the dorms are closed. So we just have this time together that certainly presented in the beginning a lot of challenges because it's like, we can't escape each other. And for me, who's 55% introvert, I need to be by myself to recover and restore my energy. It was hard. It's a hard adjustment to always be around people all day long that I can't just go in my office and be away for a half an hour at least. But yeah, it's been an incredible blessing among the challenges. Mm -hmm. Speaking of your kids, what values do you try to pass on to your kids? I, th I think they do better at, at their innate values because being resilient um, is, is such a huge piece, but they're so honest and they are willing to go to the mat for something that they believe in. And I think that is incredible because I think that is what will support them in their life. They believe in something. They also value honesty and they value people really considering your situation in their interactions with you. It's, it's not just like, how do I say it? It's like this. You can have a situation that isn't fair. Okay. They, you can, that's not fair. But my kids are often find themselves in a situation where they have empathy for the person yeah. <laughs> who isn't being fair and they, they can see the other side of it. So for them to be able to like go, yeah, I don't like this. This is not all right. This is not comfortable, but I also see where it's coming from. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Real, that's crazy empathy. That's empathy yeah. off the scale there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a gift. Uh, I know I struggle with that myself sometimes. Thank you for sharing that. I'm wrapping up here, last couple of questions. If you could go back and talk to the people, the, the family members around the dinner table when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? I'll tell you. The one thing that comes to mind is something that I did tell my mom is that my mom was very gifted. She's really talented. And she was in a situation with drugs and alcohol and just this, the community that we lived in, that there wasn't a place for her to go. There wasn't a, the, she was the Martha Stewart before Martha Stewart was around. We had herb gardens and we had vegetable gardens and we had edible flower gardens. And like I said, we grew up very poor, but because food was plentiful, we could, we had plants. And so we would have salads that came from the lettuce from a garden, edible flowers that had been sugared and pressed and put on the salad, crazy things that you would see on a cooking show. And she was so skilled, but it really never evolved into something. She never really poked the box mm -hmm. and it's, and that's sad. And I remember telling her when I was younger and it didn't resonate and didn't land with her, but that's something that I would say. And I would hope that they could also see another way. You know, they were a, on a path that, that made sense to them based on the paths that had been shown to them. And it was, I remember being in my backyard and my, my yard was on the flight path to Detroit Metro airport. And so airplanes were always going over our house. And I remember 
being in the backyard and watching them, just like laying in the grass on my back, watching them go over my house and say, one day I'm going to be on that plane and I'm going to see the world. And I have, I've been all over the world. I've had the pleasure of working with professionals in all over the world. I decided to. And then when I went to college and were around other people that said, yeah, there's a path for that. That's possible. There's the door. You can go through the door. I'm, I'm not going to carry you through the door, but you can go through that door. Mm-hmm. And there's a path for that. And I, I'd like that for them. I'd like them to have somebody that shows them another path so they could make a different choice. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. How about last question? If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, mm-hmm. what would that quote or motto say? Yeah, believe in your potential. Believe in your potential. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I, I say to myself a lot. And it's something that I say to my clients a lot, because when we're kids, we, as adults, we will say to kids, you have so much potential. You have your whole life ahead of you. So much potential. And there becomes a certain point where we stop believing we have potential. And that's, I think where things go south and where things go sideways. And if you can remind yourself that regardless of where, what you've been through, how old you are, that you have potential and believing in that potential is just a powerful and supportive way to remind yourself that it's possible. Believe in your potential. I mean, that's just so powerful. And I think that's about as great as a spot as any to wrap this up. Trent McIntyre, I'd like to thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your time on the podcast. Uh, It's been an honor to have you. Uh, If our listeners are looking for you and what you do online, where can we find you? Sure. You can find me at fireupyourbrain.com. And there's actually some free programs on there that you can jump into. I do a a series called Ask Trent. Maybe you're curious about the Brain Speedball or the Fire Up Your Brain programs and you want to ask questions or you want to learn more about it. I create videos and answer questions and give some content for people to support what they're trying to accomplish. Awesome. So fireupyourbrain.com. I will link that in the show notes. Uh, But Trent, great to meet you. I wish you nothing but success out in 2022. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that.